We'll be spending most of today's morning show talking with best-selling author Stephen Brill, a name that you very well might know for the contributions that he has made uh, to New York Magazine, Fortune, Esquire, uh, The New Yorker, uh, The New York Times Magazine. You may know the name also uh, as the founder of Court TV and uh, someone who has written considerable considerably on the on the on the matter of law in 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 the country uh he is someone who has appeared on a number of different television networks he teaches journalism at uh, yale university and is co-founder of newsguard and the author of a new book called tailspin the people and forces behind america's 50-year fall and those fighting to reverse it the book begins with a description of what Stephen Brill sees as a number of signs that uh, the United States is not the same nation that it once was, that it is not holding true to the values that made us who we are, and uh, that there are all kinds of signs that, uh, that there could be even more serious uh, uh, steeps of decline uh, in, in the years ahead. And his book is a call to to stop that decline and to reverse it, if at all possible. But he points to really interesting, let's say, unexpected culprits in terms of, of how America has found itself in the situation that it does. And he outlines this in meticulous fashion uh, in his very uh, intriguing and important book. Again, the book is titled Tailspin. It is a published by Vintage Book, which is a division of Penguin Random House. Stephen Brill, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Uh, thank you, and thank you for that description. Uh, before we get into your book, Tailspin, I want to take just a moment to uh, ask you about something which you have co-founded, which is called NewsGuard. And it seems to me that this is something that is exceedingly important in this day and age. Explain to our listeners what NewsGuard is and what prompted you to uh, create it. Sure. NewsGuard is an online service um, using human intelligence, not artificial intelligence, which I'll explain in a minute, to combat uh, misinformation and disinformation, sometimes called uh, fake news. And what we've done is uh, we have hired uh, dozens of journalists under my supervision, uh, journalists at various levels, who have now read and written nutrition labels for and provided a red and green rating for the 2200 uh, news and information websites in the United States responsible for 96% of the information consumed online. So if your listeners go to newsguardtech.com, they can download for free a browser plugin extension. Um, for uh, their Chrome browser, their Edge browser, uh, their Safari browser, uh, you name it. And once they do, whenever they see a Twitter uh, news feed, a Facebook news feed, uh, do a Google search or a Bing search or anything else, they will see the NewsGuard red or green icon. And if they hover over it, they can start to read uh, the nutrition label. Now, these ratings and labels are not based on you know whether we like a website or don't like a website, whether we think it's conservative or liberal, they're based on nine specific journalistic standards um, and how these websites adhere to those standards. For example, do they disclose their ownership? Do they have a corrections policy? 
Have they been found repeatedly to publish uh, false news? Do they gather and present news and information responsibly using responsible sources? So there are uh, uh, the nine criteria, they're weighted, and if you get a score of 60 or more, you get a green. If you don't, you get a red. But the important thing is it's all explained completely transparently. It's not an algorithm. It's not a black box. You can see exactly what we did. If we, we interview the websites before uh, we say anything bad about them, algorithms don't call people for comment. We do. And you can see our process right there, and you can comment on it. Uh, the publishers can comment on it. And as a result, what we found, we've done um, a survey using uh, the Gallup organization, um, is that people who, who download the plugin and see our ratings agree that it is completely apolitical. It's not leaning liberal or conservative, and are less inclined to share red-rated sites and more inclined to share green-rated sites. So the goal is to make sense of uh, the Internet. Um, it used to be um, if you walked into a library, uh, you know, if you walk into a library, you see books arranged neatly by subject matter. You know who the publisher is. You know who the author is. You can read the book jacket and get a biography of the author. And there's a librarian there who's explaining to you this would be a good source for this this is a good source, but they tend to be a little conservative. You should take that with a grain of salt, or they tend to be a little liberal. You should know that. The Internet is as if you walked into a library with three trillion pieces of paper just flying around in the air, and you grab one piece of paper, and you start reading it, and you don't know who wrote it. You don't know who the publisher is. You don't know who financed it. You have no idea of how reliable it is. So what we're doing is what librarians have done since the invention of libraries, and by the way, that's why uh, libraries all across the country have downloaded uh, the browser plugin for NewsGuard and installed it on their computers for their patrons to use. Wow. So it's human intelligence, not artificial intelligence, to solve a misinformation problem. Can I ask how many people uh, are hard at work doing this? Because as you said, this is something that is being generated by human beings, and I just well, yeah, can't imagine how many people it would take to do that. No, no. Well, uh, you'd be surprised because we're not fact-checking individual articles. So, in other words, if the Milwaukee Journal publishes something today that is not accurate, uh, we're not going to solve that problem because the Milwaukee Journal gets a green because it's generally a you know, quite a reliable news organization. Um, so, by rating sites, not individual articles, we achieve that 96% scale with approximately uh, three dozen journalists here in New York and in, and in uh, Chicago. And, you know, we're constantly updating them. If some, uh, you know, some new site pops up, we get an alert about it and we rate it very quickly. So it's, um, the scale is achieved, again, by rating sites, not individual articles, although we do, you know, we sample articles. We use uh, the work of the fact-checking organizations. Uh, we always re-report that work. So that's how we achieve the scale. Very good. And just to reiterate what I think is one of your most important points, uh, unlike some other services that might do something maybe vaguely related to this, you are completely transparent 
in terms of how the rating that you assign has been calculated. That's correct. So, for example, you know, every newspaper, every, you know, every website, your website, you know, BuzzFeed, you name it, has a reliability and trustworthy rating from uh, Facebook, Google, um, and Twitter that informs their algorithms about how prominently they will display that. The problem is none of those news organizations have any idea what their rating is. They can't talk to anyone about it because no one will tell them what it is. If they want to complain about it, they can't because they don't have anyone to complain to and they don't know what it is. And yet for commercial news organizations, that kind of rating on those platforms determines uh, their advertising revenue. So it's dollars and cents. It's, the, it's their very financial viability, and it's completely unaccountable. With us, if someone wants to dispute our rating, uh, you know, uh, for example, if they say, well, we actually have a corrections policy, you got that wrong, they call us and they tell us and we check and uh, we correct the mistake. We say who made the mistake, we say how we made the mistake, and we apologize. Um, and by the way, uh, since we've uh, launched this, more than 500 news organizations around the United States have actually changed their practices to get a higher score from NewsGuard. Wow. Well, I commend you for that very important work. We're speaking with Stephen Brill, and now we will turn our attention to the primary matter at hand, his latest book, a New York Times bestseller titled Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. As books like this typically do, uh, it begins in a place that might uh, lead us to, to really abject despair. Uh, that is, uh, you do take a moment to say that we are not in the midst of anything like the American Civil War, we are not in the midst of anything like the Great Depression to cite probably the two darkest chapters in America's past. But having said that, uh, you see all sorts of alarming signs of decline uh, in, in all kinds of different uh, aspects of, of uh, American life. Without taking too much time, uh, just summarize for our listeners what prompts you to uh, assess our, our current state of affairs uh, in in such uh, in, in such negative terms. Well, frankly, since I wrote the book, it's been a lot less difficult for me to persuade people of that premise because it's just been more of the same. Um, but let's take two examples. It is literally true in the United States today that the average person does not expect that. Um, you know, the average uh, 25 or 30-year-old does not expect that they will be more prosperous than their parents, and their parents don't expect that their children will be more prosperous than them. That is a total reversal of everything that's been true about the United States since the beginning of the United States. And their expectations happen to be accurate. Income mobility in this country has uh, almost been frozen. And, you know, that's what the American dream is all about. So that's one example. The second example is more tangible, and that's uh, the infrastructure problem. Mm. Um, it used to be that infrastructure was not a political issue. Uh, you know, politicians on both sides of the aisle, you know, thought long-term and, and knew they had a civic responsibility to invest in the future. So 
uh, when President Eisenhower in uh, the 1950s proposed this seemingly radical idea of let's invest billions of dollars in an interstate highway system, um, because he knew from his experience uh, with World War II that our infrastructure wasn't bringing supplies to factories on time and factories couldn't deliver them on time, et cetera. So he had this, this crazy idea. Let's do an interstate highway system. The federal government would pay for it. We'd raise gasoline taxes to finance it. Democrats and Republicans alike supported it. And they did this in the late 1950s, knowing that the fruits of it wouldn't be evident to, to voters until the, the end of the 1960s and you know into the 1970s when they'd be out of office. That's a different kind of politician than we have today. The idea today that we can't get together as liberals and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, and say we, you know, our highways are crumbling. The, just you know, the data about uh, the the cost of, of of car repairs, the data about the you know the amount of time people are stalled in traffic, the data about our crumbling uh, you know power system, you know, constant you know power outages all over the place. We don't think long term, and we don't think about the common good. So no Democrat is going to vote for a Republican president's infrastructure program, and no Republican is going to vote for a Democratic president's infrastructure program. Now that, and that used to be literally as American as apple pie. So those are two examples. The book, of course, has dozens of examples, and the the root of all that, you know, has to do uh, with five or six trends that began in the late 1960s that seemed like really good things, and that ended up having um, a boomerang effect because uh, people who rose to the top in uh, the meritocracy, which is another thing that began happening in the late 1960s, which I was a beneficiary of, uh, people who rose to the top in the meritocracy were so smart and so overachieving that they locked down their advantages. So to come back to infrastructure, they made sure that taxes on the wealthy would go down, not up, and therefore the country wouldn't be able to finance infrastructure. They made sure that uh, uh, they could hire all kinds of lobbyists to protect every other interest they had in Washington, and the lobbyists were readily available because in the new meritocracy, the economy of the United States basically became a paper economy. Lawyers and bankers and people like that not a manufacturing economy. This is a, another symptom as well of the widening uh, income uh, gap that we have seen between uh, the poorest and the wealthiest and, of course, the high level of poverty uh, in the United States, very high for, for, a, uh, for a, what, what is otherwise a highly sure. developed nation. And you explore a lot of different things. As you, as you talk about this this sad state of affairs, one of the most intriguing things you say is that the story is not about villains, although there are some, nor is it about a conspiracy to bring the country down. I think this touches on something you just said in your brief description about how uh, much of what has fed this current state of affairs uh, is, is not based on evil intentions and and perhaps in many cases on, on the best of intentions, but best of intentions exactly. that have somehow gone awry. 
Sure. Exactly. Let me take another example. Uh, the First Amendment. We all believe in the First Amendment, right? So if I told you, you know, let's go back to 1976. Uh, Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate, brings a lawsuit contesting the constitutionality of a law in uh, Virginia that didn't allow discount uh, pharmacies to advertise their discounted prices. The law had been passed by the incumbent uh, big pharmacies in Virginia who didn't like the idea of competition from discounters. So Nader uh, goes to the Supreme Court, ends up in the Supreme Court, and says the First Amendment is just as important for listeners as it is for speakers. And what he means by that is, you know, the drugstores may be corporations, but so what? They're advertising discounts, and poor people and the elderly will benefit from these discounts on drugs. And the Supreme Court says, you're right. Uh, the First Amendment doesn't just depend on speakers. It has to do with uh, the, the Constitution's responsibility to listeners. Your right and my right to hear about, in this case, the discounting of drugs. So that wipes out the notion that corporations can't bring a First Amendment uh, lawsuit. Cut to uh, you know 2008 or nine, whenever it was, you get the Citizens United case, which you know nails down the idea that corporations can donate money freely to political campaigns because they have First Amendment rights too. So. What you have is, you know, Ralph Nader, the ultimate, you know, liberal consumer advocate, uh, launching a a trail of litigation where very smart lawyers end up using it, you know, you know, in a perfectly legal and ethical way to make an argument that uh, that corporations should have a right to, you know, dominate, uh, you know, political campaigns with huge contributions of money. Mm. How's that for a boomerang? <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so you are pointing to, as you already touched on, the rise of a meritocracy uh, in the United States, which has become, in a sense, a new uh, aristocracy. And uh, and you find that actually this meritocracy is as entrenched as any uh, past age aristocracy uh, ever was, but the sort of the mechanism of, of entrenchment is, is perhaps a little different. Sure. That, that's the ultimate irony, um, that, uh, you know, I got into uh, uh, Yale College and Yale Law School on a scholarship, you know, based, I hope, on merit. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't have the money to go. And that was part of a drive in the, in the late 1960s and 70s to, uh, uh, you know, by the better... Uh, you know, colleges all across the country to provide uh, economic opportunity to people who otherwise would not be able to afford to go to those places. That's obviously a great thing, right? It's much better that, you know, someone can get in on, quote, the merits, unquote, than that someone get in because his grandfather donated a building there. Okay? Everybody would agree with that. Turns out that people like me, um, you know, we had children, and we had made some money, and we wanted our children to go to the best, uh, you know, private schools, um, if need be, to get, uh, you know, coaching for the SATs and all that. And long story short, the meritocrats of the 1970s um, have produced their own aristocracy, except it's much more defensible because we can all say we did it on the merits. And, you know, the culmination of that 
which I must admit my book did not predict, is not only uh, you know spending money on coaching and on you know the best private schools and on music lessons and and all the other stuff that you know that parents do to get their kids into good colleges, but it, it, it turns out that some significant minority of them are just plain you know bribing people to, to cheat about it, as we now know. Right. It's it's probably important that we make a distinction here that that what was what has recently made the headlines this uh, bribery cheating scandal is the most extreme version of what you're talking about what's probably f- far more significant are all of the ways that are in a sense perfectly legal perfectly permissible in w- ways in which the and people who are already at the top desirable. are staying there right and in some cases desirable so you know, if you have a family, uh, you know, if you have a, you know, someone who's, you know, made, you know, billions in a hedge fund, and he donates, you know, a billion dollars or or a hundred million dollars to some university, and that enables it to provide scholarships to some people, and enables it to, you know, to build a cancer research center that, you know, that is developing, let's hope, a cure for cancer. I mean, that's not an awful thing. You can't say, oh my God, that's that's terrible. But if in the back of his mind or even in the front of his mind, he's doing it because he knows he has a child or a grandchild who's going to apply to that school, um, that's not the same as bribing a soccer coach to say that you know, the kid's a soccer recruit, but it still is using an advantage that other people don't have. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean, I, I think you know, the whole idea of uh, meritocracy is just very confusing because you can't confuse meritocracy uh, with fairness because no aspect of the system is fair. I may have a natural instinct uh, for standardized tests, which in fact it turns out I did, and you know someone else may not. But does that make them less of a of a deserving person? Does it even make them less likely to succeed in real life? Hard to say that it does. You are uh, pointing to a divided America, which uh, you describe differently than some people do when it comes to us being a divided people, a a divided nation. And you you put it in a couple of different ways, and I think it it, it helps frame all that you explore in your book, that for you this is not about right versus left or or progressive versus conservative or uh, any other way, not even necessarily rich and poor quite that simply, but you like to think of it as a divided America between the protected and the unprotected. Why do you think that's, an, why do you think that's a helpful framework with, within which to, to, to view this? I'm glad you asked that question because that is uh, probably the key point of the book and the key point of the challenges we face. What do I mean by protected versus unprotected? Well, it's confusing in terms of politics, because I could argue, I will argue, that um, a civil servant who uh, is in charge of you know, the Veterans Hospital um, in Phoenix, this is an example I use in the book, who um, is, is running a hospital where they're doctoring the information on uh, the waiting lists to make it look like you know, there aren't long waiting lists, and you know, that erupts in a whole scandal. The idea that that person, uh, because of civil service protections, 
can't be fired for doing that, and in fact was not fired for doing that because the civil service court, there's a special court, ruled that she was never explicitly instructed um, not to have doctored waiting lists. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And, you know, it takes two years. Or the fact that a member of the Teachers Union in New York, which is something I wrote about in a, in a fairly well-known article in The New Yorker and then wrote a book about this, um, was protected uh, through a two-year arbitration process, even though she never prepared lesson plans, never marked her students' papers, just never did anything. Um, so those people who you don't necessarily associate with the upper class are protected. They're protected the same way the CEO of a mega bank was protected in in uh, uh, the crash of 2008, 2009. Uh, there was all this bad stuff going on at these banks, but the CEOs were all able to claim that the bank is so big that how could they know and how could they be held responsible for what was going on, you know, eight layers below them, in an office, you know, halfway around the other side of the world. So the, you know, the bank CEOs are protected. A lot of civil servants are protected, even though the majority of civil servants are, are heroes in my book. But the bad ones, are the, the incompetent ones are protected. Um, if you're um, a union worker in the private sector, you are no longer protected. You used to be protected in the 50s and 60s by labor laws that that worked to keep a level playing field and that protection uh, for union workers in the private sector is just gone hmm. so they're an unprotected class if you're a, if you're a bank or a credit card company um, as i point out in tailspin um, you got all these arbitration clauses written into uh, the boilerplate of what you sign up for when you sign up for a credit card or a cell phone. And the arbitration clauses basically say uh, you cannot bring a lawsuit against us. You can't bring a class action. So if I'm a cell phone company and I cheat you out of $8 a month, but I cheat the other 4 million customers out of $8 a month, the 4 million people can't get together and hire a lawyer, which is what a class action is, and bring a lawsuit, and it's certainly not worth it for you for your $8 a month to hire a lawyer to do it. So the people at the top of uh, you know, the credit card company, the cell phone company, they're protected, but their consumers are not protected by our court system, by our civil laws the way they used to be. You call us at one point a nation of moats, M-O-A-T-S, in terms of yeah. those who are Protection in a position. Versus yeah. and, and, you know, and the overall breakdown, what it really relates to is for any society to function, you know, particularly a, a, um, a democratic society, it depends on two things, uh, responsibility and accountability. If you have a sense of responsibility for the common good, um, and if you're accountable for breaching that responsibility for the common good, um, then you know, then the country works. But if you can evade your responsibility for the common good, whether it's by uh, you know cheating your cell phone customers, or uh, you know being a banker who causes the crash, um, and you're not held responsible for it, um, you know the whole sense of a community really collapses because the people who are unprotected and see that 
there's a protected class, they lose all confidence in the system. They don't turn out to vote as often. They're cynical. Uh, they retreat to, uh, you know, right-wing corners and left-wing corners. And, you know, they tend to, uh, you know, want to um, accept more extreme versions of, of uh, political leadership because they're just so frustrated. Right, and looking for simple solutions. We should say, I know we're just about out of time, but we should say that your book is not just a grim slog through things that should not be, but you do point to at least isolated instances uh, of, of, of hope that some of this might be changed, and that there are even some voices from this very meritocracy that you talk about uh, who are exactly. speaking out and, and seeing the problem and trying to... Uh, pointed out uh, to the rest of us. Not only speaking it, but doing things. I mean, there, there are people who, against all odds and arguably, you know, all common sense, are, you know, going to work every day, you know, working for nonprofits, trying to uh, reform the campaign finance system, trying to provide the job training uh, that was lost in the 70s to move people um, into the middle class, there are, there are all kinds of groups and people who are working away because they haven't become um, as cynical and as hopeless as a lot of the rest of us. Hmm. Well, all of this and more is explored in your fascinating book called Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It, a vintage paperback, a division of Penguin Random House, the author Stephen Brill. Stephen Brill, thank you for making time uh, in your busy schedule to talk with me about your fascinating book. You're quite welcome. Thank you.